Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. We are rebooting in our 12th season by revisiting themes from our first season. On this podcast, we grew up. Brave audience members let go of inhibitions and passed a rite of passage, taking the stage to share stories inspired by the theme, Coming of Age, Stories of Growing Pains and Rites of Passage. It's story time. Nick Ward. Thank you. All right, five minutes. Well, hello again. Um, So, in late March of 2020, right as the lockdown hit, I made the wonderful choice to change jobs. I'm an attorney, and I left the security of the attorney general's office and transitioned to a private law firm seeking uh, new opportunities. And over the course of the next several months, that law firm started to break into pieces and dissolve. And um, we were all working remotely at the time. And I have two small children. At the time, they were two and four years old. Childcare was a struggle because of daycare closures. And my wife and I both work full time. And I was working out of a, an impromptu home office in my son's bedroom next to his crib. And one day, I got a call from a stranger a woman who I didn't know. And she said, I'm looking for Nick Warden. And I said, this is he. And she said, I know your father. And I said, okay, so do I. (laughs) And she said, I have some difficult news. And I said, okay. And she said, your father is in the hospital. He's had a stroke. Not only that, but the woman that he's been living with recently passed away. And he doesn't know this because she passed away within 48 hours of him being checked into the hospital. Not only that, but her father owns the property, well, would would become the owner of the property um, as the beneficiary under his daughter's estate and he despises your father. So he is going to be moving forward with eviction of your father. And we need to know what to do with all of his stuff. Um, It turns out that this woman was actually a very close friend of the woman that had passed away. It also turns out that my father and I at that time were estranged. We hadn't spoken to one another in approximately three years because My father and my mother had gone through a very messy divorce later in life, and he and I had a falling out over his conduct during that proceeding. So I just kind of paused and said, you know, I thank you for all this information. I need to give this some thought. So we hung up the phone. She left me her number, and I sat and I thought. And then I picked up the phone again and called my brother. He lives in San Francisco. And I explained to him what about the call I had just received. And we decided that we would initiate contact with my father, even though neither of us had spoken to him for many years. So we called him on his cell phone 
And surprisingly, he answered. And he was in the hospital. His speech was impaired as a result of the stroke. And eventually we found out from his treating physician that he was lucky to be alive. It was a fairly significant stroke. And the first words that I told my father in over three years were that the, his girlfriend at the time had passed away and that he was going to be evicted from where he was living in the middle of a pandemic. So I asked him whether he wanted my help. And he's never asked me for anything, ever. But in that moment, he did ask me for my help. And despite the problems that I had had with him over the past few years, I agreed to help him. So I put my work on pause and initiated the process of getting him sorted out with um, Medicaid. It was extremely difficult to find a bed for him during a pandemic in a, in a facility that could house him with his medical needs, especially since he couldn't fund it privately. Um, but after calling approximately 25 locations, somebody ended up having a bed. It was extremely complicated moving him in because of all the COVID restrictions, but eventually we did get him moved in. I was able to retain pro bono legal counsel for him who represented him in the eviction proceeding with his um, former girlfriend's father. And she was able to stave off the eviction until he we were able to transition him into his new location. And eventually he largely recovered from the stroke, although it took quite a bit of time. And the whole time I was going through this, I was just having these really intense feelings of, of guilt. You know, even though I knew it wasn't my fault, a part of me was thinking, you know, if I had just sort of swallowed my anger and maintained contact with him, maybe he wouldn't be in this predicament. And I had a lot of rage directed at him for allowing himself to get into this situation and just a lot of sadness about what was happening. And I think, you know, the reason I bring up this story tonight is because on the theme of coming of age, even though this particular circumstance was extraordinary, I think a lot of people, especially people my age or around my age, have this experience for the first time where a person on whom they've relied most of their life is suddenly dependent upon them. And you have to sort of grapple with the circumstance and meet the challenge. And, um, you know, my father and I haven't retained contact once he was stable, our estrangement um, continued. But I am glad that I did get to reconnect with him for that period of time, if for no other reason than to be sure that he was okay. Um, that's my story. Dre Denise. All right. This is terrifying, uh, and I don't want to let down Dave. Um, I think initially when I was putting my name in the box, I was going to tell a funny story and be a little light, but this has been kind of a dark day. Um, my brother and I just talked to the prosecutor's office about our uh, dad. I'm not going to get into specifics, but it was, um, there's been some stuff going on. And so I figured I'd actually talk about 
what is essentially the most important stretch of my entire life. In the pandemic was difficult than everyone. We all felt trapped, but not everyone had a warden. I did. My dad used the pandemic as an opportunity to keep us trapped, to keep my brother and I stuck inside of a house that we did not want to be in and inside of a relationship that we felt absolutely trapped in our entire lives. I could not see my friends for six months at a time. I would get that one rare instance where I would get this little bout of hope and then I would be stuffed back into this house. So my mom's house, when I had the opportunity to go there, was a major refuge because I could just be okay, be myself, see people. Of course, I didn't tell my mom I was seeing people. Every night, I would just kind of sneak out, and then the next morning, I would appear back at 7 a.m., say I was going for a walk, and that would be it. But one night, that was not enough to cover it. I came back in the house, and there she was just peering at me, and I knew that I messed up. But I didn't, I wasn't scared because of her. I was scared because her being there meant she was going to tell my dad. And if that happened, something bad was going to happen. And so she looks at me and she says, I'm not mad at you. I just want to know where you are. I care about you. And that was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard in my entire life. Caring about you? What? And I realized right then and there that I have two options. I can continue to lie. I can say, no, mom, I was just out for a walk. Or I can say, mom, you can't tell dad. And I chose option B, and I, I, I broke down. I told her every single thing. I told her that we'd been hurt for the past 15 years. And she said, okay, I'm going to get you out of there. And so we made a plan that next Thursday, I was going to go there, I was going to grab my things, and then I was going to get out. We weren't going to tell anybody. And the days go by, and I'm scared. And I'm starting to feel guilty because, you know, that's what happens in an abusive relationship. You get the sense of codependence. And that guilt came to such this, this rising position that my dad could tell that something was wrong. And the last thing he ever said to me when I was going to bed the night before was, something's up. I'll talk to you in the morning. He never talked to me because that very morning when he was driving my brother to school, he got a DUI and it was like the universe was just throwing us a freebie because that meant that was his third one. He was gone. He was in jail, uh, you know, briefly imprisoned. And that was, you know, we took that opportunity immediately. We, my brother, who was not going to come with me, packed up all of our things and we had a fleet of vans from friends just coming out right in front of our house and we were finally free and we did not give him a reason we didn't contact him because we didn't owe him that and the next morning we're sitting in the house in my mom's house and my brother just says it is so quiet and i wanted to cry because we had not had a quiet night in 15 years and I'm in this weird superposition where, you know, the growing still hurts. I'm 18. I've been out of that house for a year. And I don't know how to be a person yet, you know? 
when you don't have a, a good positive role model, you are you are in a position where you are starting miles and miles and miles behind everyone else. So right now, I'm just trying to make the growing hurt a little less. Patty Bowen. Hello. Wow. We've got five minutes. Let's get down to it. Um, so this is a coming-of-age story about kind of that period where you lo no longer are kind of a child to your parents. I mean, still a child, but like less of a child and become more of an adult. Um, so it was the Christmas um, where both of my siblings were coming back. I was 15 years old. Um, my sister was coming from college. My brother was coming from college. And that meant to my parents, they were done parenting. They'd gotten two kids into college. The other one would get there eventually. Um, and so to mark this momentous occasion, we decided to do what any Idaho family would do and go out to the desert with all of our guns and shoot at random things and get so drunk, so drunk. Um, and so um, I was 15. I was a, I was a good kid, a lame kid. Um, and so I hadn't drank ever before. So this was my first experience drinking in my entire life. Very excited. Um, and so we, we drive out to the desert. We put stuff all over the place. We're shooting. My brother has a bottle of whiskey. We're just taking shots left and right. Um, my stepdad, my mom, my brother, and me, we're all just hammered. Um, and then my sister is a designated driver. Um, and so in the middle of this, my brother's like, oh, shoot, I forgot. Today is the day that my girlfriend of nine years is uh, going to be singing at church. And she's going to be the person who's like in front leading the choir for Christmas Day. We have to be there. Um, so so we're, all, we're all very drunk at this point. So we, we pack up all the guns. We pack up the whiskey, put it under the seat of the car. And then we drive all the way back into town and pile into the back row of church, hoping, praying, that no one notices that we are drunk off our hats at Mass on the Lord's Day. Um, and so we get into Mass. It's, it's going okay. It starts to get, go really poorly when my stepdad, very tall, very rotund man, falls asleep within 10 minutes and starts snoring. Um, that's the first sign that we failed. The second sign is we're, you know, the choir is going. Um, Katie, my brother's former girlfriend, is singing beautifully. Um, and I'm, I'm over here, I've got my songbook, and I am, I am yodeling, because I'm doing this. I'm, I'm so, so drunk that I, I can't stand up steady. So I'm, I'm moving back and forth as I'm singing, and it's getting really bad. And my sister is getting madder and madder. And this whole time, we look over and we had an exchange student, a Guatemalan exchange student named Raul. Um, and he had obviously come with us to the desert to get the Idaho experience. Um, and we can't find him. We're looking for him. Raul is gone. And, and so the rest of mass goes through. My sister is building up anger. And Raul is nowhere to be found. 
Um, and so mass ends, uh, Katie takes my brother aside, they're having a very curt conversation. Um, and and we're, we're circling the building. And, and after about like 15, 20 minutes, we finally find Raul. And we're like, Raul, where did you go? And he, he looks over at me and he's like, lo siento, me dormí. Which is, he had gone into the bathroom and fell asleep on the toilet. Um, <laughs> and been there for the entirety of mass. Um, and so we wrap up, we get into the car. And so now we have you know, this great family tradition. Um, but I do think my sister still holds it against us to this day. Uh, she has not been back home for Christmas for five years now. Um, <laughs> unfortunate, but the growing pains, right? Thank you so much. Jessica Holmes. That outfit is amazing. <laughs> I walked here, and as I walked in, I realized that I was pitting out in my dress, and I was like, this is the perfect coming of age. Um, <laughs> uh, I had to tell this story because Mr. Blank is here, and really, Story Story and I would not be here without Mr. Blank, and I will tell you how. <laughs> when, when I was a, a high schooler, I don't know if you can imagine this, but... I was a real dork. <laughs> I'm so cool now. Um, <laughs> my, my superpower then was invisibility. Um, I, I prided myself in no one noticing me. I used to wear these big oversized overalls and white t-shirts and just slumped around the school like this. That was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> my, my home life was... I realize now, not the best coming of age story, my dad was really addicted to meth and my mom was this evangelical Christian, so it was this strange dynamic, strange intellectual dynamic. <laughs> and I was just trying to get by unscathed. And um, the thing about not... I, I was a really shy kid. I didn't really ever talk to anybody, which was my superpower, as I said. <laughs> but the thing about that is, um, oh, it's just it's just a tough life, not you know, not ever being seen by anyone. And the first person who really saw me, I feel like, was. Al Blank, and Al Blank was a librarian at Bora High School at the time, and um, he started the coolest club in school, which was the Essay Club. And I love telling people I was in the Essay Club in high school, because even though it sounds super dorky, it really was the coolest thing in my life. Um, Al, he... He went around to English teachers and just asked, is there somebody there that stands out to you in your class? And for the first time in my life, I feel like someone saw me, my English teacher saw me, and he, she told Al Blank about me. And um, I was invited to this group of kids, <laughs> handpicked by their English teachers, um, by Al Blank. And I still remember that that first meeting that we had, um, just this ragtag group of like six kids, 
there was one aspiring model. Um, there was one wonderful Jewish girl, uh, a really intellectual kid. It was a strange group of kids <laughs> all sitting together in the, the Bora High School library. And Al, he decided that um, we would all read essays on a theme and talk about them over tea every Sunday. <laughs> Which sounds so dorky, but uh, the greatest day of my high school life was the day that Al Blank would personally come around to our classrooms and deliver our packet of essays. He put a little sticker on the manila envelope, <laughs> and I felt so special. And um, we talked about the themes ranged from everything from like, I remember the abortion was a hot topic, uh, still is, <laughs> who knew? Uh, we talked about food, I loved the food one. Um, just all these different themes, and it was the first time that I feel like anyone cared to hear something that I had to say, like that care, they care, he cared about our intellectual lives in a way that no one else did. And it, it changed, each one of us, it changed our entire life being in that club and knowing Al Blank. <laughs> um, I still remember in college, I got a call from Al, and he left a message on our answering machine. My roommate was like, we got the weirdest, we got the weirdest um, spam today. He was just like, this really deep voice was like, this is Mr. Blank. <laughs> it's obviously not a real person. It's a real person. <laughs> I just, I'm not sure, Al, how to tell you how much you mean to me, but that weird model girl and I are still best friends. That, that group, we're still so connected. Story Story Night, I never would have started without you. And I've never had the desire to be a mom, but I've always had the desire to be a mentor because of you. And I just had to tell this story to thank you for starting the seed of Story Story by just letting somebody share their thoughts on a theme even when they seem like maybe they should just be part of the crowd. And you changed my whole life, so thank you, Al Blank. <laughs> Jenny Mundy Castle. Oh, she's right here. It could be okay, my doctor told me. It could be. They could be okay, my doctor told me. She was talking about my breasts. And this is PG-13, because it has to do with breastfeeding, which has to do with breasts. And unfortunately, breasts are often not talked about as PG-13. And that hurts all of us. 
it hurts our children because we can't talk about breasts. So my nipples are inverted and I knew that this could be a problem when I had a child. I talked to my doctor about it and she said this could be okay. It might be okay. They might be okay. And I'll make sure to schedule a lactation consultant for you. And she did. And my child was born old enough, you know, nine months, over nine months, as those of us who have had children know, nine months is a lie. Um, it's always more than nine months, right? So it was more than nine months, but she was full, full term. She was small and I have inverted nipples, and she was small. She was five pounds, six ounces. And the lactation consultant came to me and she trained me and she taught me all the things, all the things that if I were somewhere else, maybe my mother, my grandmother, my culture would have taught me about breastfeeding, about how to do it, about how to help the child understand how to latch and I couldn't latch, she couldn't latch, she didn't latch. And three days, she didn't latch, and the lactation consultant said, no, she's latching. And we went home, and she got smaller, and she screamed, and she screamed, and she screamed. And she did nothing but scream, and I didn't know anything about children, because this was my first child. And so I thought that's what babies did, babies cry. Babies scream, that's it. And the three-day checkup came, and I took her in, and the doctor told me she's starving. She hasn't had anything to eat for three days. And the lactation consultant was wrong. She hadn't latched. My nipples, my breasts failed her. My body failed her. It was my fault. That was my experience. I know that's not true intellectually. Like, that was not the reality of what had happened, but she was dying and it was my body's fault. That was my experience. And it was the fault of the world not having had an experience of someone showing me what it meant to truly latch, to truly breastfeed, to be told that a bottle is bad, period. You can't formula feed. It's not okay and I couldn't formula feed. And so they put her in the NICU and I went into the NICU with her and she was happy for the first time ever because they gave her a bottle of formula and I was terrified of the formula. And it's like, why? Like, why was I terrified of the formula? Because she was starting to live, but the stories that I had heard the story of breast is best, that's it. That's the only thing. And there's one way to mother. That one way to mother is a false truth. It is not true. There are a thousand ways to mother and we need to understand that. We need to learn that. And I had to watch my baby almost die before I understood that there are a thousand ways to mother and that I'm okay that I couldn't mother in the way that I saw mothering to be, which was, you know, that picture, you guys know it, all of you know it, which is the baby 
at the breast and the mother looking down and that smile and they both have that smile and the baby's just there. I had to fucking learn how to grieve that. Sorry about that F word. Sorry, I said it would be PG-13. <laughs> but I had to learn how to grieve that. I had to learn how to grieve that loss and that was a loss. That was a loss to not be able to see my smiling baby at my breast because my breast didn't work that way. I had to learn that that was okay. And I saw my baby in the incubator and growing and learning and, and, and gaining weight and being okay and learning that that was okay because it wasn't about me, that image that image of the baby at my breast, that was about me. That was about me needing to hold her and needing to see myself being that mother. But she needed something else. We need to understand that when we bring babies, children into the world, that it has to be about them. It has to be about them, and we need to learn how to step outside of ourselves, and we need to understand that it's okay to grieve it, that we need to do that. We need to grieve the loss of ourselves when we become parents, because we have to let go of ourselves and our own needs. She's okay now, my daughter, she's 13. She's had some issues. She's, she's had some issues. She's had eyesight issues, things like that, as a result of having starved for three days. And I've learned, and I know now, that we just need to let it go. We need to let ourselves go, and that's what parenting means. And we need to stop shaming mothers. We need to stop shaming our ideas of what motherhood means. We need to stop shaming ourselves about what parenthood means because it means letting go. And that's all it means. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers, in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. Have a story? Call the storyline at 208-917-1970 and leave a message. Please subscribe to Story Story Night on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcast. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.